In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. As we all know, we live in a time of the unprecedented success of intentional misinformation. Misinformation and falsehood that is invented and then peddled as truth. And if I were to ask us to agree on what that involves, we would not, but that's beside the point. We are in an age and in a time when this is a rampant problem. Alternative versions of truth and facts are everywhere, even though, by definition, that's not even possible. And we've been setting ourselves up for this by the idea that has been growing over time, not just in the United States, this is worldwide, by the idea that each and every person gets to invent his or her own truth and live that truth. You see it on social media. Live your, underline italic bold, your truth. So the question that we have to face more and more is how do we navigate in a world in which People believe that they can invent truth for themselves. The path is unsustainable, but people evidently believe that it is sustainable. So how do we navigate this broken reality and come out of it on the other side someday intact? And I find that many of the stories in the Bible are in the Old Testament in particular, are highly instructive concerning this question. One of them is found in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And I'm not going to read from it necessarily right now, but uh, if you want to follow along as I tell the story, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. In a battle with Israel, their enemies, the Philistines, captured the Ark of the Covenant. And everybody knows what the Ark of the Covenant was, right? The, the visible presence of God among his people, Israel. And so for the Philistines to, to capture this symbol was a big deal for both Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to the temple of their god, Dagon, and they put the ark there in front of their idol and went away. The next morning when they came back, Dagon had fallen on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Philistines set their God back up on his pedestal. 
But the next day, they found him once again, fallen flat on his face, this time with his arms broken off. And then the Philistines in the city began to get sick. And they began to suspect that maybe Israel's God had something to do with this. And so they sent it to another city. They had five. They sent it to another city. And the people there began to get sick. And so they sent it to another city, and the people there began to get sick. Pretty soon, nobody wanted the Ark of the Covenant. So what did they decide to do? They decided to send it back home. Back to Israel. And so, they got a brand new cart, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on it, along with some extremely valuable guilt offerings. And then they took two cows from whom they took their calves. Thinking that if these cows will leave their calves and take the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, we know that what we've been suspecting is true. And sure enough, the cows, bellowing in resistance, pulled the Ark back to Israel. And as the Ark of the Covenant crossed over the border, there were people, Israelites, working in the fields, and they saw and they recognized the Ark of the Covenant toward, coming toward them, and they were overjoyed. They chopped up the cart to use for wood, and they sacrificed the two cows in thanksgiving for the ark being returned to them. However, unfortunately, out of curiosity, 70 men decided to look inside of the ark and were instantly put to death because of that. And so, afraid, they called some men from Kirith Jerum to come and get the ark, which the men of Kirith Jerum did, and they consecrated Abinadab's son, Eliezer, to take care of the ark, and they put it in Abinadab's house. Sometime later, Israel asked God to give them a human king, because they didn't have one, and King Saul was installed. And during that time, the ark of the covenant remained in the house of Abinadab in Kirith Jerum until Saul's reign was finished and David finally became king. And one of King David's first objectives was to relocate the capital of Israel. It had been in Hebron, and he wanted to relocate it. He was anxious to do this because he had it in his heart, the Bible says, to find a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant. The place he chose was a city named Jabus. And if you read in the book of Joshua, Jabus was one of the cities that the people of Israel had failed to conquer back when Joshua was still alive. And so the Jebusites still lived in the middle of Israel in their own city. And David decided that this would be the place for the capital. The problem was is that the Jebusites still lived there. However, the fact that Jabus was an inconquerable city, which is why Israel had not taken it, 
That did not phase a man by the name of Joab who took it for David. We won't go into that story, different, different story. Now, Jabus had been a city in that location for a millennium by the time David got there. It was already a very old city. This was where, hundreds of years earlier, Abraham had been prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. Jabus had also been the home of the mysterious Bible character and priest of God by the name of Melchizedek, whom some people actually think may have been Shem, Noah's son, possibly. Don't know. The city, though, back then had been called Salem. And David decided to rename Jabus for that ancient, ancient tradition, calling it Yeru Shalem, which we now call in English Jerusalem. It means city of peace, Shalom, city of peace. Now, with the place to put the ark, David moved the ancient tabernacle from Shiloh, where it had been for hundreds of years, moved it to Jerusalem, and then arranged to bring the Ark of, of the Covenant from Abinadab's house. And in typical David fashion, he planned a grand ceremony, a grand celebration to accompany the Ark on its nine-mile journey from Kirith-Jerim to Jerusalem complete with musicians and joyful celebration. They brought the ark out of the house of Abinadab and placed it on a brand new cart. Now, for anyone who has read Exodus and Leviticus, what's wrong with this picture? How had God told Israel to transport the ark? On a brand new cart? No. They were supposed to carry it on the shoulders of the Levites, priests. The big, long poles had been designed right into it from the beginning for that purpose. But apparently, David and the people of Israel either forgot about this command, or they thought because the Philistines had done it and, and everything was fine there, that maybe that made it okay, you know, God was okay with that. Or... Maybe they just thought it wasn't all that important. You know, it was, yeah, God had said it, but, it, you know, it, it's not one of those things that God really cares about, is it? However, God does not forget, and God doesn't issue unimportant commands. He just doesn't. And just because somebody else does something and gets away with it does not necessarily make it okay. In 1 Chronicles 13... God made this point shockingly clear. 1 Chronicles 13, beginning in verse 9, verses 9 and 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down, because he put his hand on the ark. And so he died there before God. For those of you familiar with this Bible study, have you ever struggled to reconcile this thing in your mind? Uzzah was trying to help. He had good intentions. If I thought God looks at the heart. Didn't he know that Uzzah meant well 
when he reached out his hand to stop the ark from falling? Isn't that a good thing? If doing such a thing was so terrible, why hadn't he done some of the same thing to the Philistines? They must have touched the ark repeatedly. And yet they were not instantly struck down. Why not? What was the difference between Uzzah and the Philistines? The difference was that Uzzah knew better. And the Philistines did not. The Philistines could not have known. The Philistines acted out of ignorance, and God dealt with them accordingly. God does, in fact, look on the heart. From our perspective, Uzzah seems to have meant well, but he knew better, or at least he had the option of knowing better. God had clearly told Israel that anyone who touched the ark without being properly prepared would die. Now, somebody may protest, well, yeah, but those warnings had been given hundreds of years earlier. Long, long time earlier. What do you think? Do God's words expire after hundreds or even thousands of years? Of course not. The people still had copies of God's law with them, just like we do today. They still had it. It was all there. Yet Israel had either forgotten or ignored what God had said, plainly, in Exodus 19.22. And there he had stated in crystal clear terms that anyone who touched the ark without consecrating himself, God would break out against him. And that's exactly what had happened. And what's more, the incident where the people had died when they looked into the ark, the 70 people that had, that had not been all that long before. It was still recent history for them. So Uzzah and Israel were without excuse for their actions. They knew better, and therefore they were held responsible for what they knew. This story ought to speak strongly to us still today, which is why it's still in the Bible. Because we live in an age when all too often Christians act upon their own truth, in quotes, even though we know better. Or at least we have the option of knowing better. We have God's law among us. And yet we too often decide to ignore it, or maybe that it's just not that important or some excuse. Evidently, Uzzah thought that he could decide what was and what was not important to God, in spite of what God had said. Anyone who decides that a command of God is not important, someday is going to discover that they're wrong. It is important. For example, God commands us to return 10% of our income as tithe. That command hasn't disappeared. God commands us to keep the Sabbath holy. That, that command has never been retracted. God commands us to care for the poor and the suffering. That command has not expired. God commands us to love each other. That command still of the highest importance to God. God tells us to honor our parents, to have nothing in our lives that is more important than him, to forgive and not be angry with each other, to do to others as we would have them do to us, and so on. These commands and more given so long ago, they haven't expired. The Bible is packed with directions from God on how to live our lives, and we ignore these directions 
at our peril. Well, you know, we might be tempted to say, that was the God of the Old Testament. Things are different today. Really? God says he does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Well, when Uzzah died, how did David react? You remember? David got angry. David was angry at God. After all, the punishment did, at first glance, seem unjust. And we, we sympathize with David. We understand why David got angry. But note what happened as a result. Suddenly, God was once again elevated in Israel to a level of respect and reverence that over time he had lost. The death of Uzzah straightened out the thinking of Israel in regard to the seriousness of God's commands. To Israel, God had become tame. God had become tame. C.S. Lewis wrote a story where a girl asks if this lion, who represents God, is the lion safe? And the response was, safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Sometimes people think of God as a tyrant, angrily dangling sinners over a barbecue pit. Others swing to the opposite extreme, thinking that God is a great cosmic, harmless teddy bear. Neither extreme is correct. The reality is, is we don't serve a God who defines himself as safe. We serve a God who defines himself as love, which makes him also a God of justice, because love is always just. When God says that the wages of sin is death, that's because it is. It's a law of the universe. God can't throw out that law any more than he can throw out his character because that law is a reflection of his character. Not even God is above his law. That's why he can't simply forgive everyone's sin and just waive the penalty of death. Oh, I forgive you. Let's just move on. He can't do that because that in and of itself would be a breach of justice. God would have to break the law to do it, and that would be sin. And God does not sin. He cannot overrule the law. He has to work within the law even to save us from the wages of the sins that we have committed. That's why he satisfied the penalty of sin by sending Jesus to die in our place so that he could save us and still work within the confines of the law, still be a God of justice. So based on that story of Jesus and all that he gave up to save us, we cannot fall for the idea that God is a vicious, angry, cruel God. But also, based on stories like Uzzah, neither can we fall for the opposite extreme. That God is a pushover. The Bible does describe a gentle side of God. 
It describes him as a lamb, but that's usually more in the context of his sacrifice for us. More often, the gentle side of God is described as a shepherd with the heart of a father. So if you're hurting, if your heart is broken, if you're afraid, if you're sad, God wants you to know that he cares, that he loves you, that you can come to him for protection, for love, for healing. That is God's heart for you, for all of us. But shepherds and fathers are not always gentle. They become something else entirely when necessary to protect and to provide for those under their care. God knows that as God, no one else and nothing else can replace him. It would mean our destruction, all of us. It would mean our destruction if God ceased to be God. So we must not assume that his gentle spirit means that we don't have to take his commands seriously. King David and Israel with him had fallen into the trap of not taking God's commands seriously enough. Therefore, Uzzah's death that day, at least initially, seemed very unjust to David. They were doing a good thing. Their motives were pure. The Bible says that David was angry at God for what he had done, but then, as God knew would happen, their anger soon turned to fear. Israel recognized that they had reduced God in their minds to something tame. But suddenly, God showed himself to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, a God to be respected, a God to be feared, whose, name, whose commands are to be taken seriously. Both the lion and the gentle lamb are biblical pictures of God. But we can't accept one picture without the other and still have a complete picture of God. He is both lion and lamb. He is both gentle and terrifying. He is both healer and warrior. He is both merciful and just. But in all, he is good. He is love. David decided the ark was a little bit too dangerous to have near him at the moment. And so he found a place for it in the, in the home of a man named Obed-Edom. And shaken, David returned to Jerusalem and the people returned home. They had learned a serious lesson about God that day. They had come face to face with a side of God that they had glossed over. And David, for one, took the lesson to heart. Some time later, David again acted on his desire to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem. This time, however, David and the priests had done their homework. This time, they knew God's commands concerning the holy things, and they were determined to follow them in every detail, the Levites were told to pick up the ark by the poles and carry it on their shoulders, and under no circumstances was anyone to touch the ark, like the people had to be told that now. So this time, in line with God's instructions, the musicians and the people began their joyful celebration. And although David was king, he wanted nothing to detract from God 
that day. And so he removed his royal robes and wore a simple white robe like the priests and the musicians and everyone else was wearing. Today, king though he be, he would be on the same level as everyone else. Today was God's day. I, I, I'm looking forward to meeting David someday. David was a complex character. He was obviously a gifted person, but he also experienced extremes of emotion, both positive and negative. And when he celebrated and praised God, he was uninhibited. If David worshipped with us here today, we would be highly uncomfortable with the way he worships God. David sang, danced, leaped, twirled in ways absolutely and completely unbefitting a person of his rank. Imagine some president or, or you know, some, some dignified leader acting in such an undignified way as David was acting that day. David let loose in celebration and joy before God with no thought to his personal reputation. Reputation. Reputation can be a dangerous thing. Our reputation, if we're not careful, can become a kind of God, an idol to us. And it can become a kind of God to the people who are connected to us, which seems to be what happened with David's wife. The daughter of Saul, named Michal, we call her Michael in, in, in our language, Michael. First Chronicles 15, 29. Here's what, it, here's what the story uh, happened. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Why? Evidently, she thought that David was not acting as a king ought to act. He wasn't even acting like a spiritual leader ought to act in her mind. He was acting undignified, and, and Michael was incensed. 2 Samuel 6 actually tells more of the story. After the celebration, and the, the ark was installed in its new home, David returned home to bless his family. But he never got the chance. The moment he walked through the door, he was met by his wife, and she was furious. In words dripping in sarcasm, she spat, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now David had not been immodest like some Bible translations make it sound. I think the King James Version said he danced naked. And that's not what happened. All he did was dress like a commoner. Michael was jealous for the king and her husband's reputation. Why? Because her own reputation was tied to his. 
If he was disgraced before the people, then so was she. God or not, the king should not act in such an indignified way. And David replied in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord, and I'm not sure why he put this piece in here, a little jab. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or from anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Jesus made the same point many years later. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And evidently, God also disapproved of Michael's words, and the next verse says that she never had any children, which was an awful curse in those days. We can learn so much from these Old Testament stories. I know many people actually believe that the Old Testament is no longer valid scripture. That's a frightening thought to me. These stories are packed with warnings to us. A people who tend to blur the lines between the holy and the common. It's popular today to claim that each person can invent his or her own truth. But we can see from these stories how that works out in the end. The Philistines tried living their truth, and that did not go so well. The 70 men who looked into the Ark of the Covenant tried to live their truth, and that didn't work out so well. Uzzah tried to live out his own truth, and that didn't work so, so well. Michael tried to live her own truth, and that didn't work out so well. David, unfortunately, later also tried to live out his own truth, and that didn't work out so well. And we will soon learn that neither can we invent our own truth without eventually paying the price. Do you know what it means if I believe that I can invent my own truth? You know what that means? It means I think I'm God. It means I think I'm God. But there is only one God, and he is the only truth. But didn't God say through the prophet Jeremiah that he's written his law on our hearts? Doesn't that mean that we're not just inventing truth? We just know. We just know the truth in our hearts. Isn't that what that means? Actually, what God said is he will write his law on our hearts. He will do that. But he also pointed out through Jeremiah that the human heart is broken and desperately wicked. God doesn't have an easy time writing his law on our hearts. And that's why God instructed us to work on it, to work on writing his law on our hearts. It's Deuteronomy 6. I, this is one of my favorites. I bring this up every once in a while. I love Deuteronomy 6. 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Now listen to the work involved. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. According 
to this passage, we must take intentional steps to make certain that we are providing God ample opportunity to write his law on our hearts because the truth does not originate from within us. The truth originates with God and it is communicated to us. When it comes to knowing and living the truth, our hearts are a work in progress. It's not possible to have the truth written on our hearts without ex consciously exploring and the living word of God to discover what more God wants to show us. We, as citizens of the kingdom of God, have the responsibility of seeking and knowing and understanding and abiding by the only truth that is entirely true. And the way we do that is to take time each day reading these stories in the Word of God and asking God to write their lessons on our hearts. Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z. -I